welcome to the May episode of the International Voices podcast. I'm your host and moderator, Udo Flug, and I have the honor to oversee the Office of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula. We started International Voices in February 2020. To listen to previous episodes from last year and the spring, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global and Cultural Affairs, and visit radio and podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail, 1033. It is my great pleasure to talk to Dennis Koslow for this May episode of International Voices. This podcast is the start of a three-part series titled Creativity During COVID, featuring professional artists from various fields in the next couple of months. Dennis Koslow has been active in the theater, music, and musical theater world throughout Central Europe. He was born in Missoula, Montana, and traveled with a chamber chorale from the University of Montana to spend a postgraduate semester in Vienna in 1983. Dennis remained in Vienna to study at Vienna's Hochschule für Musik. He has performed in Vienna and has played in most of the major musicals there. He has also performed in light and contemporary opera in the Wiener Volksoper, Wiener Festwochen, Neue Flora Hamburg, and operetta in the Badener Stadttheater, Bad Ischl Operettensommer, theater, film, and predominantly musical at the Vereinigte Bühnen Wien, in the Stadttheater Klagenfurt, in the Opera National du Rhin in Strasbourg, and in the Theater des Westens in Berlin. He has appeared in films playing Judge Turpin in Sweeney Todd, Reverend Moore in Footloose, Van Helsing in Dracula, and Captain Andy in Showboat, to name but a few. Dennis is a founding member of the Vienna-based improvisational group, The English Lovers. He lives in a small community east of Vienna with his wife, Anne. I am in Missoula, Montana, connecting Missoula to Vienna via my conversation with Dennis Koslow. Hello, Dennis. Thank you so much for um, being my guest for the May International Voices podcast. Dennis, I think uh, starting out, uh, it would be nice for our audience if you could please briefly describe your education and your career path into performing arts and why did you decide to perform in Europe versus staying in the United States? Sure, um, your listeners can lean back because this is going to be a longish answer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Uh, I grew up in a state which isn't known for producing a lot of performing artists. I grew up in Missoula, Montana, and uh, there's a lot of talent, vocal talent, dramatic talent running around in Montana, as there, are, as there is in every state in the Union, I'm sure. But the concept of actually making a profession of it is something that is completely foreign to anyone growing up there, or at least it was in the 60s when I was a kid in grade school. Um, 
my parents were both teachers. My mother came from a family that was very performance oriented, I would have to say. And my father was an athlete, which also has some element of performance involved in it. Um, or at least discipline and perfection. Those are skills or qualities that, a, that an athlete should, should, should strive for. Um, my mother's family was always at every family reunion, at every gathering, somebody would sit at the piano, somebody would sing. And that, I don't know, that sort of working together in, a, in a, an ensemble already at that time really appealed to me. And uh, when I was in fourth grade, so I was 10 years old, I was a very loud kid, a small, skinny, smart aleck. And I came in and I was always in a good mood. And I'd come into the kitchen in the morning and say, good morning. And, you know, the shutters would shake and the cups would tremble. And a friend of my mom said, that kid is so loud, you have to put him on stage. So there was a there was an audition for a high school performance of uh, Peter Pan at that time. And they were looking for lost boys, of course. And I went to the audition and was cast. And I have to say that was really a seminal moment. That is when the, the, the drama bug bit in some sense or other. And, and it was that sense, I think, of a lot of people working together toward one goal. So for me, performing has never been about being the guy, being the one. It's always been about sort of the group endeavor. In any case, when I got to high school, I did, I sang in the choir. I tried out for the basketball team and they didn't take me, which is for the athletic program in Missoula in general, and certainly for my career development in particular. Um, so I sang, I played bass in the, in the orchestra. And if there was a play on, and there were four or five a year, usually I auditioned for it. And uh, often was cast. And when I got to then university, um, I decided to go to the University of Montana because I had no clear idea of what I wanted to do. I sort of projected for myself an academic or a, 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 like a, a traditional profession like medicine or law. And uh, I, enjoyed very much, uh, shout out here to Bill Haffey, who was my high school Latin teacher. I loved Latin so much that I wanted to take Greek and Latin when I started at the university. One of the reasons I didn't go to Bozeman to school was because they didn't offer Greek. Um, <laughs> and so I, I started out uh, in my first two years, my, I had math and physics and Greek and Latin. It was a very classical education, I suppose you would call it. And uh, at the end of the second year, the university, and together with the Missoula Children's Theater, was doing a production of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I was kind of tired of just, I, I worked selling shoes <laughs> to pay for college. You could actually, you know, I think tuition, and we're not talking about the Middle Ages. This was 1976, 77, 78. Tuition was $1,500 a year. Right. And if you were getting better than a B plus average, it was half that because the state would fill in the other half. So basically, uh, college was 
almost, I mean, tuition free for me in those days. Right. Um, so I, I could pay for a small room that I was staying in and pay for tuition and books, have some money left over for beer at night with the, with my friends from the shoe store. Perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I guess I decided I wanted to do something that was kind of fun rather than just the dry academic studies I was doing. So I auditioned for this, for this musical that the, the university was putting on and a man who was working on his, I think his master's degree at the time, he's only about two years older than me, was uh, part of his core requirements were to be a musical director of an ensemble show of some sort. So he was the musical director of Fiddler on the Roof. And after my vocal audition, he said, uh, you have great resonance, you should study. And I only mentioned this particular moment in my life because it was kind of a turning point. And that guy is uh, famous. He has an Oscar, he's J.K. Simmons. And uh, we subsequently became friends of a sort and sang in the same choir for a little bit. Another Missoulian. I'm sorry? Another Missoulian. Another Missoulian. Um, so he recommended that I uh, go take voice lessons, which I'd never considered uh, as an option in my life because I thought you could either sing or you couldn't. Sure. And, uh, and the woman who was the voice teacher that he recommended was the wife of the choral professor at the university, Don Carey. Her name was Ann Carey. She was a lovely woman and a great teacher. And after about half a year of lessons, she said, you really need to go sing for my husband because he's taking a group of students to Vienna in the spring of the following year. And that might be something that you would be interested in doing. So I went and sang for Don and I did some uh, sight reading and we talked a little bit about what the program was going to be in, in Vienna. And uh, I completed my requirements in classical languages studies and, and started a music uh, major. And in my first year of that three-year course, it ended up being three years because I had a lot of electives already taken care of. Uh, the spring of that year, I went to Vienna and uh, kind of, I got infected with a different sort of bug because you were standing in the edifices like the Karlskirche or this, some, some cathedral for which a particular kind of music had been composed. And, and the music just, I don't know, it resonates differently. Um, a, a Baroque church will break the music up differently than the, the spaciousness of a Gothic cathedral. And so sure. you see how influences from architecture are, are essential in understanding how music sort of developed. Right. Because the church and the, you know, the, the royal, royalty were paying for the arts for, for thousands right. of years. Right. I kind of came home. I, I, I did an odd, I did a, I, 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 did an interview with IBM because they were looking for, of all things, people with strong math and classical languages backgrounds to do systems analysis. 
And I got an, an offer to go back there, but I wanted to finish my music degree first. And the, the year, my final year after I graduated, Mr. Carey was taking another group of singers, this time from the entire Pacific Northwest, 16 singers, to go and, uh, and sing and do postgraduate work in, based in Vienna. And he hooked that program on to another university, the, the language department program, which was led by Horst Janke at that time, which is why they went to Vienna. Because normally, if you were trying to learn German, right. you would not go to Vienna. It's like sending right. somebody to, to Queens to learn English. It's just, the dialect is so strong. Right. It doesn't right. make sense. But they had this personal connection and it's, Every year, one of the four top dest or, or places as far as uh, lifestyle or, or quality of life in the world, Vienna is always one of the cities where they say, "Yep, you don't have to be a billionaire to have a, a good quality of life there. Right, right. So this time when I came back to Vienna, I had no intention of coming home or staying. I, had, I was completely open. And the man who was uh, teaching the master classes in voice said, to me, there's a dearth of uh, basses and bass baritones right now in the world of opera. And he was a, a just retired, but a, he sung big roles at the Met and at the Vienna State Opera and all over the world. He was a, a decorated and, and highly regarded singer. And he said, come and audition for the opera school here. And I did that and they accepted me. I, I worked at Hertz Rent-A-Car picking up the dirty cars, washing them, tanking them, vacuuming them for like $4 an hour. I can't remember. It was just, you know, but again, got me through. And I didn't, I don't know. I wasn't trying to build a stock portfolio. You know, I just was right. sure. experiencing my life and seeing where it would go. Right. So after, well, sort of in the second half of the first year at the opera school, I, I was already very tired of opera at that time and of, of my fellow students. Because an opera, it's like working with world-class athletes. If you have a world-class singer, they're only interested in a, like the two cubic centimeters that are their vocal cords and that's it, and, you know, getting the next job. I, of course, became consumed with getting the next job later on in my career too. But <laughs> <laughs> in any case, I got a, an offer to join some old Viennese cabaretisten and some new young performers in a kind of a combination show in the spring of 84. And that sort of started me off because a couple of people saw that show, hired me for another show. I went on a touring production of Jesus Christ Superstar, where I met my wife, Anne. Uh, more about her later. We're still married. We have three kids. It's been wonderful and tricky and, you know, as it is, 35 right. years on. No, 36, 7, something. But... As it often as often happens in this business, and I know that's true of a lot of people, one thing sort of led to another. And you asked the question of how I ended up deciding to stay right. in Europe. I guess the the real the answer would be I, I never decided to go back because jobs just kept happening. And I knew at some point, um, after about five years, I was working in big musicals with Harold Prince and Rob Marshall, and and it just didn't make sense to try to go back to, to New York to, you know, scrape scrambled eggs off a plate at six in the morning. So I could maybe get an audition in the afternoon. Right. When I, when things were rolling. Sure. 
The other thing is the political development in the U.S. was not trending in a way that I thought looked like I'd like to be there. I mean, I know the word socialist has a, has a sort of a, a negative connotation in the United States, but there's a, there's a strong feeling here that no post-secondary education should be paid for by the person who's obviously elementary school and high school is going to be paid for the state, but also in large part, any kind of uh, advanced studies are supported by the state. If you can qualify to get into the schools, that's the, right. that's the only hurdle. And, uh, and if you're successful in keeping up with your, your studies, medical insurance is, a, I know it's a huge thing in, in the U S but here it's just, I don't believe there's a European country that thinks to itself, well, we should really cut, you know, the state medical insurance because people can obviously do better with the, with the private companies. It, things that just seem so absolutely essential on the one hand and, and selbstverständlich, I don't even know the word for it, it's obvious right. that that's a way that an, a state takes care of its people. Those were things I found very, very enjoyable and pleasant about sure. being here. And uh, on that Jesus Christ tour, which was one of the first job, probably the fifth job I got when I was here, I met Anne, as I said, we had, uh, after about a year of being together, we decided we, we did want to have children. We did want to raise them here. Her father was a, was a Viennese um, businessman. Her mother was British and they had separated when Anne was very small. So uh, she grew up kind of with both mentalities and, and she didn't want to live in England and I didn't want to live in the States. We were both very happy to stay in Vienna. So that's where the personal and the professional sort of cross and, and seem to work, be going, you know, right in the same direction. And, and uh, the only thing I thought to myself was I, because, because of the big shows here, very often we'll hire certainly choreographers and directors, but also technicians and stuff from, from the States, very often bring them in. And I thought maybe I'll click with somebody, they'll think I'd be right for the role they're doing in the next show or something. And if they said, we're workshopping a show in Philadelphia and we want to get it to Broadway and we think you'd be perfect for this role, would you do it? Then yes, I would have done that. Of course I would sure. have done that. No, I, I can but, totally um, understand what you're saying as far as the idea of why stop a good thing? Yeah. And when, when things are going the right way, why, why would you want to change that with a risk of that they would not be going so well somewhere else? It makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, yeah. and, and I think what you said about uh, the quality of life, perhaps as a, as a larger idea or um, just being uh, feeling appreciated um, is is also playing into that, and and what you just said as yeah. far as healthcare, uh, education, uh, things of that nature, I think uh, make a big difference as far as where where a person uh, would be comfortable living. So makes yeah. perfect sense. And there's one more thing, and I don't know how this why this was part of my worldview as a kid, but I always thought. I would like very much at some point to live 
in a foreign country. This is when I was in Montana. Right. Learn to speak their language, take part in the culture so that I'm not a tourist, but I'm living there. I'm doing something with them and just have immerse, that kind of global perspective. Yourself. Right. Immerse yourself in a Immersion. Yeah. Rather, rather than being a person that's looking from the outside in. Yeah. And I did had no idea that it would mean sure. really becoming an expat. Right. Right. Well, and I don't think that um, if, if one would ask individuals that have done uh, that in life, that they, that they would know either. I think one never knows at the time. Um, you just kind of go with your gut feeling. Yeah. And, uh, and then later on, probably that sort of bubbles up. But I think at the time, I'm thinking of myself here, having come to Missoula mm. uh, 30 years ago, yeah. Uh, and, and, and while I listened to you, I, I, I sort of was, you know, agreeing and, and saying, yeah, that's exactly. And people have asked me that they said, so, Udo, you know, you came from Germany and you studied at the university. So naturally that ends at some point and one would think you would go back to Germany. And then my question was always to what, to what would I have gone back <laughs> if there would have been a great opportunity if there would have been some kind of a setup uh, where one would have said, oh, this is my niche. This is where I fit in. I probably would not be here today. But there wasn't. And there were always things, always new things that developed. And I, at some point, uh, had the same sort of reasoning and said, why, why stop a good thing? Everything's going well, so why not just enjoy the ride? And, and I have to this day... And so in a way, our conversation is sort of, you know, the same, but in two different places. So anyway, no, I, I just, I found that enjoyable when and you were talking about that. And I kind of thought about, yeah, it's, I would totally agree because that's, that's exactly what, what my reasoning was too. <laughs> well, that is fascinating. And what it, it we, uh, what, what, what we, what we know about our lives, when we look back, very often we think, it's like looking at a fine Swiss watch, the way it all coordinated and what and it happens. It was inevitable. But in the middle of every step, it just feels like a chaos, a morass of, of, of possibilities. And you just grasp at the one that seems right at the time. And yeah. Right. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I think you're right. It, uh, in, in the larger perspective, of course, uh, everything is probably fine. And, and uh, but when you look at these individual events and happenings that sometimes make a person pull their hair out, uh, <laughs> then you kind of go, how, how did I make it through there? But um, no, that was very insightful. And, and thank you for, uh, for really describing um, what was the, the convincing factor or what was for you uh, the, the reasons that, that that you made the decisions that you made. I think that as, a, as an introduction to our conversation, I think this is just perfect because now everybody knows why I'm sitting in Missoula talking <laughs> to uh, a Missoulian that is not in Missoula, but in Vienna. So that, that's, a, that's a perfect setup. <laughs> yeah. Now... Dennis, how, how did you experience 
the shutdown of all performance activities in Austria and Germany last year. After all your years of, uh, of, uh, of film and stage work, um, how was that last year when that happened? Well, um, it happened so fast, Udo, didn't it? It was, uh, it was, quite, it was quite astonishing. I had just finished doing um, an inspector calls at a theater in downtown Vienna. And we it was, last year was a leap year, or 2020 was a leap year. So we closed on the, on the 29th of February, I remember. Um, my daughter sang a concert on the 1st of May, which I, I'm, I'm March, which I still wanted to hear. And I flew to Montana on the 2nd of March to visit my parents who are both still alive. Hallelujah, love to you both. Um, and my dad turned 90 this year, so. Wow. Yeah, and my mom's birthday, my 87th was just now. They're doing great. Anyway, I, went, I do try to get back twice a year to see him if I can. So I, I came back and we were supposed to on the, that, that was the 2nd of March when I came. On the 12th of March, we were supposed to fly to LA where I have a brother who lives and uh, meet my wife who was going to come over and spend a week with my parents there because she hasn't seen him for a couple of years. And we kept getting, we were, I kept thinking, well, this can't, you know, we we'd had SARS and we'd had other things. And I just kept thinking, this is going to be contained. It's going right. to be fine. We're going to be able to get to LA. Well, it just seemed to not stop. So on the, I think on the 11th of March, the day before she was supposed to fly, my wife canceled her tickets. My parents and I canceled our tickets to LA. And, uh, and I was supposed to start rehearsing to, to your question um, on the 19th uh, for a show that of course never happened. But also my flight, the flight that I had rebooked to fly from Missoula then back to Vienna was closed because all of the Vienna airports closed on the 19th. So nobody right. could fly into Vienna. I could have flown into London. Right. But then I would have had to get across a a Europe that was closing its borders one right. after the other. So right. I ended up getting a, after lots of juggling around, I got a flight to Munich and I took a train to, uh, to the border town right across from Salzburg. I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway, there's a, there's a small local train that runs across the border. And I expected there to be guards in hazmat suits and stuff. I don't know what. Sure. But I'm a permanent resident of Austria, so there was no question that they were going to let me cross the border. I'm still an American citizen. Um, and when I got out in the Salzburg station, I also expected them to, there was almost no one on the train, but it was just like a ghost town. There was a woman riding her bicycle through the underground passage of the Salzburg big, it's a huge train station, as you may right. know. And that was it. Huh. It was like, so then I got on another train and came home right. and tried to figure out what was going to happen. We, I, we, I had two shows, three shows actually that spring I was supposed to do. Um, the first one was canceled immediately. And the, the second show was a spring show of improvisation. And that was, we thought maybe we could get it up and running on, in a, on a streaming platform somehow. But we, none of us had enough experience at that time 
So that show just basically got canceled. And then there was a great comedy with a fab, a fabulous role uh, that I was supposed to do at the Theater National in Luxembourg. And they canceled about a week before rehearsals started. Luxembourg is a wealthy nation. And they and the city itself is very full coffers. So they uh, they paid basically they paid I can't remember three quarters of the of the agreed upon salary. Um. So basically, and then the summer theater thing I was supposed to do didn't happen. I I did teach summer camps for Berlitz because I because the only thing I could do I had to get some money rolling. Uh, summer camps for Berlitz. Uh, foreign language, I don't know what it's called, Berlitz. Right. Sprachschulen, speech. Sprachschulen. Uh, uh, you, you tell me, I don't know. Language Berlitz, school. Berlitz Sprachschulen, yep, you're right, yeah. language schools. And they have, for kids, they have, like, I don't know, from 10 to 16, kind of, they have summer immersion camps where they have native speakers teaching, and then there's always an after, afternoon and evening activity and stuff. And I didn't know how that was going to work with the separating things. I taught everything I could out of doors. I had a mask. They were 10 feet away. Nobody in the, in the entire summer, and there were, they have seven or eight camps going all summer. Uh, no, there was not a single case of COVID that showed up. So that was good. Um, I tore my hamstring in the last week of teaching because I was water skiing and I had a bad accident and I tore my hamstring. So I was then on a kind of like unemployment, but it was sickly because I could not have taken any job, even though there were no jobs to get, but right. that was uh, one of the ways that the government stepped in a little bit. They have been in general, fairly supportive for, uh, performing artists, provided that you have been registered as a performing artist for a while. I think if somebody was just starting, just got out of school right. and had a contract at some theater and the show didn't happen because of COVID, I think they would have been in trouble. They would have had to find sure. something else to do. Sure. Um, but my wife has done a lot of work. She's also in, a, in my improvising theater group. Uh, but she also has done a couple of uh, plays just as a straight actress, she was a professional dancer for much of her life. And she also works as a translator and she does voiceovers. So she has been in this kind of freelance artistic community for a long time. And she has been, I mean, I think sort of probably the amount that, the, that Americans have gotten as, as assistance from the state, something around 3000 total dollars, maybe a little more probably more like six now over the time. That's been very helpful. Um, but clearly one of the things we wanted to do, especially this impro group is not lose our audience. We've been together for 20 years and we've got a right. pretty good sized audience, but sure. we wanted to somehow serve them. So when right. Christmas rolled around and we weren't going to be playing at Christmas either, we decided to start early, work hard and figure out a way to do a, a streamed Christmas show. And that has been really, really good for us because it's made, it's made us, it's pushed us into spheres that we wouldn't have been in otherwise. And which really is a good way, COVID or no COVID, to serve a modern audience. Right. I have a, 
girl who lives close to here, 12 year old girl that I do English tutoring with sometimes. She just comes around, we talk for an hour. And, uh, and she doesn't really know actors and actresses, not, not even, I'm mean, talking about film actors on the international, but what she does know are influencers and YouTube personalities. Right. So one of the things we definitely need to do as a performing group, and most of us are over 40, so this is not our bag in general, right. is uh, serve an online community better. And this is forcing us to do that, really. So we've created three different shows already for online uh, streaming. I'll do a little, uh, our, our group is called The English Lovers. And if you Google The English Lovers Vienna, you will find us somehow. And if you're interested in seeing what a, a group of pretty funny actors that have been working together <laughs> for 30 years uh, wow. do in an impro situation. Well, some of us have been working together 30 years. The whole, the whole group's been together for a little over 20. But there's a South African guy, there's a guy from Maine, there's a Canadian, there's an Australian, there's an Irish girl. We've got, yeah, and my wife's English, so. Uh, so the English lovers. <laughs> Have to so get it in. This, this happened so fast, you were, you were saying starting out, that there wasn't really, in the beginning of COVID, um, any plan in place or nobody really knew just like it was here what you know what the next day would bring or the next week would bring That's but right. but you're saying that that after a while it sort of it stabilized and you were able to um to figure out how to how to deal with this new with this new situation and i think in your profession more than than anywhere else, uh, this must have really been difficult. I'm I'm sort of thinking along the lines of um, the voice and and facial expressions and and gestures are important in performing and and while video conferencing technology has helped in many other areas to bring people together where it wasn't perhaps so much about intimacy, where it was a business deal or where it was a, mm -hmm. an educational setting or something like this. Sure. But, but, um, but live performances create this intimacy and between the actor or the actress and the audience. And, and, and so yeah. what I find fascinating is when you were saying that we have now pivoted and we have, created things for streaming. We, we, have, we have sort of figured out how to do this and how to, in this time where there was no contact, how to still be creative and be productive and, and have a creative outlet, but we're doing it um, in this new way of connecting. Yeah, let me give you three, these three shows. I'll just describe them briefly. Sure, the first one, that would be great. Our, our traditional Christmas show is set up so that the audience gives little suggestions for the beginning of each little scene. We have some sort of uh, overarching background idea. And then the, the, the little scenes and people who know these, uh, who know Imbro know these as games happen as they do 
based on suggestions from the live audience generally. And then at the end of the show, let's say the last 25 or 30 minutes, we do a, a musical. We do a live, an improvised musical. We get a couple of things and we just, we have a lot of experience in storytelling and we use different genres, uh, both musically sure. and visually. And generally to great acclaim, we bring an improvised musical to the to the end of the show right um this year we basically tried to do that show as if it were taking place in a televised a television studio live yeah. with a uh -huh. facilitator that was on a, a, a written chat right and so the facil facilitator once in a while would come on and talk with the actors we had like a a moderator kind of guy and then we sure. but i mean he also was one of the players so he'd play too right and but she could uh, sort of multitask by getting asking the questions like uh, if you look to your right what's the first thing you see in your room any something simple like that right and uh, she can she could write those down and get those chats in and then she as a facilitator would read some of those suggestions to us setting us up for our next scene and we had including her camera. We had seven cameras. Oh, wow. we, the, one of the technicians from the theater was doing the live video editing, which is monstrously right. challenging. Right. They've got seven pictures in front of them and they're just deciding to go to what screen for what. And, right. and it's an improvised show. So they don't have any idea who the next person is who's going to speak, right? Absolutely. So, um, but that went really well. Normally that's our big breadwinner for the whole year because we do... 25 shows at Christmas and they're all sold out. Sure. Um, and this year we got a bit of a grant because of the special circumstances and things like that. So we were able to pay ourselves. Right. Spring show uh, was set up as if it was a writer's room. So we had one, we had a, there were two spaces in one great big room, right? But one mm -hmm. of the stage spaces was the stage. The other space was a writer's room for a bunch of new, like uh, a streaming show, like a, a streaming production company like Netflix. Sure, sure. And we had to get lots of new material going really fast. Right. And uh, and so as we were talking about it, we'd start to enact it. So that the other, if we were pitching an idea and then the other writers would join in and become the characters. And then we get back to the table and it was just sort of a fluid thing that went back and forth. Um, we also used the same sort of facilitator idea, the suggestions from the from the from the virtual audience, um, but the the let's say the the facilitator was acting as kind of a sub producer and putting on pressure and saying, "Sure, the bosses who are our audience need to see something with a lady who has just lost her false teeth and they need it now." So you know, <laughs> so somebody would have to come up with an idea. And right. Whatever. Right. The third show, and this is the one that we're just about to come out with, is more like a radio play. Because if you're doing, we're having a Zoom conversation, you and I, so we, we right. can see each other. And most of our podcast audience will know how this looks. But if you've got eight people on the screen at once in some sort of a Zoom meeting, for example, right. you don't know if you look, if you're playing, let's say you're playing a scene with somebody and you look to your right, because on your computer, their picture is to your right. They might be above you. Right in, the, right. right in the Zoom meeting thing. So 
we couldn't do a, we couldn't do any kind of a virtual play that way where we weren't in where we all had a bunch of different pictures or if we can we haven't figured it out yet but what we are doing now is we have a catalog of paintings and photographs all of which are copyright free thousands of them and one of the players throws photo onto the screen which we can all see we're in zoom but we're in little tiny thumbnails on the right, right hand side of the screen right we have maybe some crinkly paper and a and a uh, I don't know we have a, a, a bottle of water and some broken glass and I know we've got a few things that we can use for some kind of, of sound effect we see the picture we have a musician who can play in real time with us over a thing called clean feed because you can't sing with a virtual pianist on zoom because there's a little time lag and it just doesn't work with clean feed it's synchronized it's simultaneous right. so he can start a little overture we're looking at the picture and then we tell a story or we or somebody just says a monologue you might start something in you might say it was 417 an early morning in california the streets were dusty and so was my throat you know you start so you start a noir kind of genre thing right right because the photo is evocative of that. Sure. And we tell a little story. It sure. might be a 10-minute play. It might be a two-minute poem. And then the music comes back and another photo comes up. So, and that's a sort of a radio play thing. And we haven't, it's not what I would call ripe for a performance yet, but it's very close and it's sure. really fun. Yeah, I find that amazing that you and, and your uh, colleagues came up with these ideas to to make the best out of the situation and to really continue, but to deal with the fact that you, you know, now we're in a Zoom-like environment and you don't have a stage where everybody can see everybody, but you can only see the little, the little square picture on the screen. And <laughs> you constantly, like you said, you, you, you then rely on a live editor that is quick enough to cut between the different cameras so that you have that you have some kind of a of a storyline that unfolds but yeah. it's fascinating and, and and out of that i think out of this this creative connection between artistic talent and technology you are you were able to do uh the christmas and the spring and and now the third performance you told me about that is just about ready that then would bring me to the question in a post-COVID world, when COVID is no longer an issue, whenever that will be, do you think that some of these um, creative ways assisted by technology might continue? Is there some value in some of this? Or do you predict that the end of COVID is the end of those alternatives and everything will go back to the way it was before. Oh, I think we'll see a hybrid sort of situation. We are um, certainly one thing that we're, one thing we're doing in June is we're playing two, I'll call them school shows. We're doing two stream shows from our home theater. That, I'm talking about the improvising group now. Right. Schools across Austria are going to be eligible, I would say, to watch it. And normally right. we can only play, we only play for live kids. So it's only, let's say 
Vienna kids or kids within a 50 mile, 50 kilometer radius of Vienna who would even come in and see one of our school shows. So we've got a, a highly expanded uh, reach with a, with a virtual show. I know that people, especially for improvised theater, they want to be in the room. There's just, streaming cannot capture the atmosphere of it. Right, right. But these, these shows that we are forced to find a way to make work uh, will, will certainly give us another, another leg, another, another direction that we're going to groom and, and, and continue to learn into, I hope. I just got done playing in, in a live theater in front of a live audience in Luxembourg at the Grand Theater, maybe the only theater in Europe that was open at the time. We played the wow. first two weeks of April. We rehearsed, of course, the five weeks before then. It was a Harold Pinter play. I'm so happy it happened because it was, the set was like Oscar worthy. It, the set was the, the, the entire, um, floor like main floor of the audience the seats were all taken out the set was built on four walls all the length and width of the theater and it's a you know 17 1600 seat theaters it's big but the balcony was still open i don't know probably 20 yards by 30 yards or 40 yards something like that that's sort of the size of the set on all four walls on two levels wow it was all in a state institution there was a water therapy room there was I was the director of the place. I had a big office and a and a, like a sitting room next to it. There was a duct room. <laughs> there was a hot, it's called the hothouse. There's like a greenhouse hothouse kind of thing. And then the cells of the patients all above it. I mentioned this only to say that normally 1,600 people could see this play. We, right. could, we were sold out every night. We had 200 people in there because they could only sit every, you know, every two meters, every six feet on swivel chairs. For every chair there was that was there you were missing five basically right we were only supposed to do initially six performances but they sold out the minute they opened the the people are so hungry for live theater i guess that's the point of, of sure telling this. right right and it was it had been more than a year that i'd stood in front of a live audience too and right. that was so exhilarating for me oh and i'm sure that many people that are that um, that are in this position that they have or need an audience are this must have been tough um, to not have an audience for a year and then to go back and I've even uh, talking to colleagues here in regard to teaching they said the same yeah. thing they said I'm almost nervous going back in a classroom standing in front of people because yeah. I haven't done it in a year I always had this sort of uh, buffer. Uh, uh, called a Zoom camera uh, that was between me and my and my listeners, and now right. I have to go back and be be in front of them. And so I'm sure that that what you just said is is uh, come comes with a little anxiety, um, a desired anxiety perhaps, but nevertheless an anxiety of oh I'm going to be back in front of a live audience. Yeah, I mean I really. I've done, I counted them. So I've done 7,000 performances in my life. I, I have, I've been incredibly fortunate because I'm almost always working. I've done lots of long run shows. I don't, and, and, and also through improvisation, I have to say the sort of what the Germans call Lampenfieber, stage fright. I don't experience that anymore. I have 
it was it was wonderful to have an audience there again but i didn't have a moment when i thought i don't know how this is going to go but a lot of times if you're you know we do we do three or four improvised shows a month and if you've sure. done that for a lot of years and you don't you don't have one line of dialogue or one place you know you're supposed to stand on stage or one person that you know you're going to you know one character right. you know you're going to play <laughs> everything else is like easy peasy do you think that there has been a permanent loss of talent in the performing arts due to the out of work actors and actresses that needed to make money and that have pursued different careers oh i'm sure of it i know i know of two concrete cases in germany both germans that after about six months they were already both of them were already one was a kind of a businessman sort of but a great actor and and one was a woman who stopped her certification teaching certification process because she decided to pursue acting she got back into her final certification training and now she's uh, she's got a job next year as a teacher not it's very difficult once you've stepped out right entirely to get back in come back in what does acting allow you to do or allow you to express and what alternatives did you find and we talked a little bit about that but as your creative outlet this last year oh well wow, that is a great question Because I remember, now this has nothing to do with the with any sort of stage fright, but the exhilaration of standing in front of an audience once and once right. again, and just letting that machine roar. That was so exciting. And it made me, I hadn't even considered that until it happened. I hadn't even considered the fact that I was missing an outlet. You, you, you learn, you hit, you, there's a button you can press inside yourself where you all of a sudden, you've got the room. You know, right. it, uh, Jack Lemmon used to, he used to say, I, I don't do anything. I don't do anything. But just before the camera starts to roll, I go over into the side of the room and I go, okay, it's time for the magic. It's time for the magic. And then he would just be, right? Right. That's the button. And if you're not, it is really looking back now on, to that moment. There are certainly, I, I really believe that I, in one way, I, I had a more tense relationship with my wife, but both good and bad. I mean, uh, less filter, I suppose you'd say. Right. Um, and and also maybe a tendency to, to, to take things that I would, normally use in the course of a rehearsal or a performance and carry them with me for a bit and then unleash them whatever they would be like i say right. good or bad in right. a personal situation I'm a, i'm a very happy person i i mentioned it early on in the broadcast and that really hasn't changed much i say i'd be happy doing anything i know now certainly that i have been graced and and blessed with a profession that challenges me every day in a different way marches a panoply of very interesting people past my professional door so to speak <laughs> you know right you get very close in an ensemble sure and then the show's done and you're gone and you may never you it's very likely you will work with some of those people again but you may never work there's some you'll never work with again you'll never sure. see again and so i guess they're That kind of change was missing. That sort of rumbling right. was missing. I didn't, I don't know. I can't say that I had any other than those moments I talked about that I found any outlet. But I know that by God, when I got on stage in Luxembourg, I used the outlet there. It was good to be back. 
Yeah. It was good to be back. <laughs> now, um, Dennis, taking this from a connection or a personal experience, what it means to you, can you tell us why are the arts or should the arts be important to people? Sure. Well, first of all, I think there's no, let's say I don't have to prove this because it's clear that arts and culture are necessary to, a, to, to, to society because there's not a society that doesn't have it. Right. Everybody has a rich life. Stephen King said the most uh, cleverly and, and, and craftily drawn character in a book is nothing but a bag of bones compared to the least interesting person you know. And, <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. But I, a lot of people don't get an outside perspective on their lives through their profession or through their family life. Right. And one of the most important things of culture is whatever it is, if it's a painting, if it's a play, if it's a, if it's a, a dance, if it's a piece of music, it's somebody looking into their most private and personal experiences and putting them on display somehow. Right. And that moves us either individually or as a society away from some safe center where we're at. Right. To some place where we have to look at things differently. But there's an there's an improvisation uh, exercise, which is just called What Happens Next. And the actor that's on stage doesn't have to do anything. The, the actors who are beginning improvisers usually doing this exercise are sitting around him and his, he just says, what happens next? And someone says, you stand up. So he stands up. And then someone else says, what happens next? You sit back down. So he sits down. What happens next? The telephone rings. So he picks up an imaginary telephone. What happens next? It's the wrong number. So he puts it back down. Any, this happens, I've, I've taught this exercise a million times. The first time people do it, they don't want that character to change. Right. They right. they want him to be safe because by changing him, they have to change something in themselves. They right. So you have to guide them into getting that character to move out of the chair, to open the door. There's a beautiful woman there to to go on an adventure with her, whatever. Right. It's like pulling teeth to get people to do that. <laughs> so that's I do believe that's the most important aspect of culture in a society is to when when the whoever they are, the audience takes part in it, whether it's a passive or an active exchange, they are changed. They see the world differently and they need to, we all need to. Thank you for, for sharing that. And, and I'm only asking because um, every so often, as you know, there, there, there is the debate flaring up why are the arts important and why, why should we care? Or why, why shouldn't we? I remember this at the university um, years ago. Is it important to have language uh, offerings in, in a curriculum at a university? Or uh, would it be better to have um, more science classes or, or, or debates of that nature? And of course, there's always the side of, of the, the individuals that say, oh, you know, there is enough art. There's, you know, everything there is. We're surrounded by art and there's, there's a lot to consume. So let's not. And then I'm thinking, what, whatever do you mean? Can you be specific and come to find out when you yeah. look closer at it, there isn't enough and there should be more. 
And especially when one thinks about the positive impact and what you just said, the ability to look through another lens, to, to evaluate something outside of one's own comfort zone. When do normal people yeah. have to have a chance to experience that in, in an eight-hour uh, job that you do and with family and other uh, right. obligations that one might have? Uh, the day ends and you go to bed and you never have a chance to reflect on that. Going to a theater play or going to a musical performance or whatever it is, or going to a museum and looking at art, I think uh, you're absolutely right, is so important because it it allows the person to step outside and to and to and to get that different lens on that they normally wouldn't. So I'm 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 glad you are uh, you are feeling so passionately about that because mm. I think that is so important and. Uh, in a pandemic, uh, as we have seen it this last year, with all the limitations, of course, has, uh, has narrowed that even more. And people yeah. had less of a chance to look through a lens that, that previously was there perhaps to some degree. And so um, that, I think, is, is an important thing to, to consider. And my hope is that it comes back many fold when, when the yeah. pandemic is over, that there will be more performances and people will go and see more things and that ticket sales go up uh, for all kinds of performing art activities because people should be chomping at the bit to get out and to interact with people and to be live somewhere and not anymore. Not sure they are. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, so I'm, I'm so glad you're saying that because um, I think that is so needed. Now, Dennis, coming to the end of the, of the podcast, and indeed, many questions that I had are somehow woven into our conversation of the last hour. Excellent. Um, but um, I, I think I have one more question, if I may. What advice do you have for a young person who wants to pursue a career in the performing arts? Uh, do it. That's my first advice. My, my, my serious advice, I guess, would be um, uh, have, have endurance, have faith in yourself. Because if you have the feeling you have something to share and it's something that makes you feel more satisfied when you share it than when you don't, then do it. It... There are two things, clearly, that are the most important things in life. I think that I, I say clearly because I, for me, it's crystal clear. One is your choice of partner or partners, or in any case, where you are in, in intimate relationships, because that will make you ecstatic or make you miserable, no matter what the rest of your life is like. But the second thing, not as important, but nearly as important, is your choice of what you're going to do every day. Right. Do you, do you want to go to work or do you not want to go to work? It's a big, big difference. Right. So if you're thinking, I have to say, when I, people say to me, it's not a secure profession. Now, I've been very lucky and I've been working all the time, constantly. Sure. 
and I've experienced the theater world from, well, not administration, but almost everything else. Right. Writing, lighting, directing, and performing in all kinds of theater. And it's going to survive. Theater is going to be there. Live theater is always going to be there. Some jobs that we think of as secure are not always going to be there. I'm sure right. there are significantly fewer bank tellers right now than there were 20 years ago. Absolutely. The bank teller was a very highly respected job here and, and a very secure one, supposedly. But yep. they just stopped hiring them and the yep. other guys retired and now you have machines do most of it. Right. And there's lots of different, there's lots of different professions where that's the case. If you want to be an actress, a singer, a writer, a producer, a director, go to a theater and open the curtains for them if that's what they need. G get on stage, get backstage, get to it. You will never regret it. That's awesome. As, as, a, as a, a, final, a final word on the podcast, I think that's incredibly powerful. Thank you, uh, Dennis, for um, your time today, for your insight, and and I have to say for your passion. And uh, you know, I've I've I talk with people uh, every month, and uh, and everybody is different, of course, and and everybody has their own angle on things. And and but what I enjoyed just listening to you was the passion that came out of you and the energy and uh, just, I don't even know how to describe it, but I, I, I can see now why people would, uh, would, uh, would go and see a show that they know you're in because they're, they're getting something that is above and beyond what you get when you talk to uh, many other people, because <laughs> there isn't, there isn't this passion and there isn't this, uh, energy that that comes along with it and I really enjoyed that today I, I you know from our brief interaction the other day I thought mm. it's just as I always do let's have questions so that I have something to uh, to go by but come to find out our conversation just sort of happened and and uh, here and there I, I looked at my question sheet but not too much because you just kind of took it and went with it. And, and I really, I want to thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. You were a very uh, talented audience, I have to say. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very kind. Thank you, Dennis Koslu, for our intercontinental conversation. I very much appreciated your passion with which you have approached life in your academic training in your work in theater and film, and in the conversation with me today. To the listeners near and far, please join me in June and July, continuing our three-part series on creativity during COVID for my conversations with two artists and how they were dealing with the pandemic. As always, thank you for listening. Those of you who are regularly Tuning in to international voices, no. Being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail, 1033. 
This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and the trail 1033.com. If your interests are in global and intercultural education, programming, cultural and global competence, and international affairs, we hope you continue to listen to International Voices. Thank you.